Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Christy. I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I think you and I were talking, I don't I don't even remember what we were talking about. I know you were part of the uh, One Cause, their conference or something, and we were, uh, we were talking about an event, and I think that was pre-pandemic and everything. So I'm delighted to have you back here now on the what we think might be the other side of the pandemic. Um, delighted to have you back, Christy. Uh, before we dive into our conversation today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm delighted to be back, Jason. Thank you so much. Yeah, and fingers crossed that we are on the other side um, yeah. or approaching it anyway. Uh, as you said, I'm Christy Howard Schultz. Um, I currently run my own consulting business, which I have done for the last four years. But I have spent a career in philanthropy, primarily in youth and community development and in education. I've had the very good fortune of working for some of the big national brands like the Boy Scouts of America, um, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, the Boys and Girls Clubs, all the way to grassroots um, organizations and even a couple of uh, private schools. So, yeah. Christy, you're in uh, Indianapolis. We have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fundraising vibe always coming out of Indianapolis. Do you have any, do you have a particular theory on why that is? I mean, what's the, uh, what's the backstory to why fundraising and philanthropy, uh, there's a lot of fundraising thought coming out of Indianapolis. You got any ideas on why that is? Well, um, you know, we have the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, which I think is yeah. probably a big reason. Um, yeah. 
And we also have, of course, the Lily Endowment. Um, not everything yeah. is named here with Lily, but uh, many things are. And um, I think in addition to that, we just have a tremendous nonprofit uh, leadership sort of thought leadership community. A lot of nonprofit tech is located here. As you well know, um, we have shared friends there. And then we have this really great community of people from the charitable advisors, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, um, but a longtime community leader, Brian Orender, who helps organize our community. Um, and then Connor Insurance, we have a great AFP chapter here. Just lots of uh, local local support for our nonprofit community. That's, uh, yeah, I did. The, um, I was surprised. Somebody told me sometime back, back when, I don't remember when it was, but Toronto has the, Toronto up in Canada has the largest AFP chapter. And I'm slowly starting to figure out, do you reference your chapter? Um, I'm slowly starting to figure out where the large chapters are and, and perhaps where the sort of the center of those, those sort of communities are. Um, Christy, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I don't even really know. Uh, you and I have talked and exchanged messages, and but I don't even know where you're going to go with us today, and that's usually part of the fun. Um, so what do you have for us today? Um, well, I, like you, I think, Jason, have too many big ideas. I have to keep a notebook and then <laughs> just revisit them. Um, I have more ideas than time, but I think... What we're going to talk about today, um, the big idea that I have, my focus for 2022 is fundraising for a living wage. Um, I We have a local initiative here in Indianapolis, actually, that began about a year ago called the Good Wages Initiative. So they took the MIT calculator, which wherever you are, whatever labor market you're in, you can Google that. The MIT has a calculator where you can calculate the living wage for your metro area but they went a step beyond that. Um, Employee Indy is the name of the agency. And they came out and said that in our market, a good wage is $18 an hour. And so while I've long noticed, you know, colleagues of ours, as we all probably have in the nonprofit sector who are admired for, you know, working for what they work for, um, I feel like over the years, I have felt that I've seen a different side that you know, it's uh, Adam Grant would call it the passion tax. I would call it the compassion tax that people are actually yeah. like being exploited for their uh-huh. compassion. Um, yeah. When frequently our skill level in the nonprofit world, honestly, the need for our skill level far exceeds several, you know, for profit jobs. Um, not that it's one or the other, but when this good wage initiative came out, it really ignited something in me to notice um, of all of those places that I've listed that I've worked for most frequently. um, And even still today, people are not paying a living wage, let alone a good wage. $18 an hour, to give you an idea, is around $38,000 a year. And many of our nonprofit jobs here in Indianapolis, um, which entry-level jobs, quote unquote, require master's degrees, are paying thirty-two to thirty-four thousand dollars a year. You know, fourteen dollars an hour, sixteen dollars an hour, um, and that's not okay. So my big idea is: I believe we can fundraise for not just a living wage, but for a good wage. I believe that's our ethical responsibility, and I believe in the talent that we have that we're capable of doing it. I've got I've got mixed feelings about this one, and I think you're the first person on here who's sort of driven the driven the message, you know, driven the conversation directly to this point. And um, I'm I'm sitting here sort of simmering on what I think I want my first question to be. Um, I I think the first thing that comes up when I, when, when this topic of wages comes up um, is the idea that has fundraising over professionalized itself. Have we, have we, have we gotten ourselves too much as fundraisers, have we gotten ourselves too much into the work of what is actually work that volunteers, for example, are perfectly capable of doing and therefore messed with the ROI that can be expected on that dollar that we're raising and therefore driving down the actual dollar that, you know, the the part of the dollar that actually can ultimately end up in the pocket 
pocketbook of the fundraiser. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, if we let volunteers do their part, mm-hmm. if we ultimately let fu- volunteers do their part, would fundraisers necessarily get being, you know, w- w- would some of us get be getting paid better? That's kind of the, that's kind mm-hmm. of the, that's what, that's, that's sort of what I wrestle with is, um, is we're, you know, how many fundraisers, for example, are spending all their time doing doing work that could be relatively handed off to volunteers or outsourced to companies who know how to do it more efficiently? And then we, as fundraisers, could be spending time in front of donors, you know, raising money in more high-yield sort of scenarios and consequently be able to demand higher wages. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I do think in general, volunteers are underutilized. And certainly the pandemic has. Um, in fact, our our last conversation that we had was about volunteers. Um, I'm just having an aha moment. Um, <laughs> I, I do believe that volunteers are underutilized. And I think what I do think, though, in the challenge and the nuance in what you're talking about and what I'm talking about, um, although there's a thread here, is that I think frequently as organizations, we see the cost of the investment, but we don't see the cost of the loss if we don't invest. So volunteers absolutely could be empowered and trained to do more um, and, and bring stocks, you know, bring, bring more money directly to the agency. And someone does have to manage those volunteer efforts. You know, um, it can't be an afterthought. It can't be slapped together. It can't, you know, it has to be very um, intentional and professional in its own realm, that volunteer tier management, because that, you know, it is a critical role. Um, I, I, and I think that's part of the reason that it, it is frequently underinvested in because it takes yeah. a professional person to manage it. Yeah, yeah, I, and, and I think that I think the other I think the other thing that I because because I've watched this conversation sort of uh, you know it's it's certainly sort of playing out in a number of different ways in a number of different circles and certainly has ex- extraordinary relevance in in what we do in the nonprofit sector. I, I think I think the other thing is is um, I, I've been spending a lot of time um, researching the difference between um, commodities and gifts. And, we, mm. and where do we, where do we, where, where do we allow, and this, obviously this sort of loops back to the volunteer, but where do we allow the gift of time? Mm. And, and, and if we're not, and, and if we're not signing on for jobs, if they're jobs, we need to probably just make sure that everybody knows their jobs, like a hundred percent, this is a job. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because I think I think the I think the nonprofit sector is fueled so much by the charitable gift and the gift of time and the gift of money and the gift of whatever that that we that we confuse that. Isn't isn't that part of the messiness that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I might need a little bit of clarification, but. I mean, yeah, I think if it, you do, you mean like when it's a job, we define what the job is and then whatever is outside of that is the gift. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So I, I, I have been, um, so, so when do we, when does the, so we have these case studies, for example, we teach, I teach these with my students over at the college. So we have these case studies and there's one particular case study where uh, the, the executive director hires a junior employee and the junior employee comes on at a less than, at a less than we'll call it market rate. It's, it's, it's certainly, you know, we'll just say it's less than your $18 an hour sort of, we'll, we'll call it that It's We'll say it's just, I don't even know if the number's in there, um, but but part of the ca- part of the case study forces our students to sort of wrestle with is that is that employee allowed to give away? Is, is there any part of that wage that they're allowed to generously give away? And in this particular case study, it's a I, I don't I don't know who the individual is. It's a it's a hypothetical case. But the person's basically saying, "I want to give away of my give away that portion of my time." Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You follow me? Yes. Yeah. It's kind of like the transitioning, call it the transitioning volunteer. It's the volunteer who's working Mm -hmm. inside your organization. And as the organization sort of matures, uh, that, that, that volunteer says, this is taking on more, more time than I imagined. So you're going to pay me something, but don't, don't these organizations get caught up in the, you know, that, that employee oftentimes started, started as a volunteer. They were completely giving away their time. Mm -hmm. Now they're getting paid 12 bucks an hour, which is less than you're 18. And, and I don't know that we're, I don't know if, if in some of these conversations about wages, if we're sort of wrestling with that, yeah. that organizational reality that sort of plays out in, in these small shops all the time. Does that make yes, sense? I, yes. That makes better sense. Okay. Sorry for misunderstanding. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's definitely happening. And that, that's, that's, that's part of what the you know, whether you want to call it the passion tax, you want to call it the compassion tax, you want to call yes, it a yes. missional discount, right? Like we yes, frequently right. hear that phrase, the missional discount. I think the question is, and where the the ethical line is, is are all do all parties, the employer, the employee, the volunteer turned employee, do they all have a shared understanding? Um that that discount is being given the missional discount or is there an upfront contract where you're asking me you're saying hey it's been great to have you as a volunteer we'd love to bring you on in this way this job does require a little bit more than you know said amount of time is there a clear understanding and agreement and a clear willingness in that exchange or is it something that is um you know implied and then, you know, sometimes exploited, right? We, we had a, when my wife and I, when my wife and I started our nonprofit work, we went to work for a children's home in the Southwest corner of Virginia. This was in, uh, I think it was two that we married it. We got married in 2001 and we each went to work for like $13,000 a year. <sighs> um, and, and, and we were provided housing and we were provided food and, and and um and in the subsequent organization we went to work for we went to work for a camp ministry Erica Erica by then was having ch- we were having children and so she didn't work but we were similarly in that organization provided with food and housing and stuff and and I just think that I think that some of the drumbeat on this wage issue just doesn't I don't know if it's taking into consideration the way that some of these nonprofits sort of finagle their way. I'm not saying it's right, Mm -hmm. but they do maneuver and finagle their way around what is in many cases, just resource slim organizations. Some of these organizations just don't have a lot of resources, but in the case of the children's home we worked for, they had four apartments on the backside of the property that they gave to employees that they couldn't Mm -hmm. quote, you know, pay a quote unquote living wage to. Yeah. Yeah, you and I have very shared similar backgrounds. I worked at a a sleepaway camp. Um, One of the organizations that I worked for, um, we had a camp that was outside of town. And so someone managed the land for a small wage. And in exchange, they lived on the land. They lived in the home that was on the land of the camp. So, yeah, I mean, I think... I think there are times when it is a, a matter of fact, of course, like resources are slim. I am certainly not meaning that it's that it is um, emphatically and all of the time out of like malice or ill intent. Um, I think sometimes there is a shared understanding and sometimes there isn't. I mean, Google for profits do the same thing, right? Patagonia, even B Corps, like they want the lines between work and home to be blurred because if you can do any- and bring your kids there and your pets there and you can take a nap in a hammock and you could, right? I mean, they're doing it. They have far more resources <laughs> than the folks that we work with. But, um, but you know, the question is, is the, tr- if, if the question is, do you know that it's a trade-off? Are you aware yeah. of that as the employee? And then yeah. second to that, is the trade-off worth it? Have, have you encountered that scenario? This is something that I'm constantly saying to clients. So, and you work with small shops, so you get this. Have you encountered, how often do you encounter the scenario where, you, you know, the, the nonprofit 
finally figures out how to pay their executive director a wage that is somewhat competitive, right? So that 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 wage that otherwise would seem like completely impossible to this small shop that's always sort of stretching pennies and everything, but they finally get. I don't know. They finally figure out how to pay an executive director, say $80,000 a year. I run into this all the time with private schools. They they finally realize that, okay, we're going to have to pay this senior executive of our, of our private school, $80,000, which is not a lot of money um, in the, in the con, in the grander sort of scheme of things. Um, but what that also does, and what I'm oftentimes saying to these executives is, is they sort of set this, they almost set themselves up by not having sort of realistic expectations on what they should be expecting of their own compensation that mm-hmm. they ultimately set somebody up down the um down the you know down the ladder if you will mm-hmm. to make that 18 bucks an hour mm-hmm. do you encounter yeah. that Yes, I do. I do. Although I will say, you know, <laughs> most most clients that I'm engaged with, we are, ex- you know, specifically engaged in capacity building where I'm really fortunate, um, it, particularly with my current group of clients where they're very aware when that is happening and like working very yeah. hard. As it, in, in particular, they have great board leadership where the board leadership is aware of that. And working really hard to, you know, scale everyone um, and to note. And then I just think the labor market, I mean, it's no secret. We all read the news. The labor market is also so competitive that, you know, if you, if, if in your metro area, um, the YMCA decides that they're going to pay everyone $15 an hour. Well, the JCC and the Boys and Girls Clubs and every other place like that have to figure it out, right? Because, what happens, right? There's a, there's a mass exodus. Um, and so I think leaders, both volunteer leaders and staff leaders are being proactive because like, you know, they see this happen here or there and they're being yeah. thoughtful about that scaling and how to build that. And, 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 and they're, you know, ultimately working on fundraising for a living wage in that way. Right. Is fundraising the first place? I've never asked this of anyone, but but you've started a conversation about wages. Is fundraising the first place that a lot of these nonprofit organizations really start to sort of have to confront that there's a market, that there's a labor market within the nonprofit sector, <laughs> that somebody else actually wants your employees? I remember working for a, I remember working for an, well, yeah, I don't want to disclose the whole story there yeah, in that yeah. particular <laughs> job, but, but um, it, I, I tell, this is what I tell clients all the time. I said, you're going to hire somebody, you're going to hire a fundraiser. This person's going to make, this person's going to make easily $10,000 more than you probably want to pay them. And they're going to be 10 years younger than you think they should be. You know, they're going to be 10 mm-hmm. years younger than you think they ought to be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a labor, it's a market for talent that, that in, especially in these smaller shops, they've never encountered. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't encounter in any other context unless they're, unless they're in a sort of an, you know, if, if they're a YMCA, they know what program directors in other YMCA cost, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these organizations, I don't think they realize that the fundraiser can make the same money, you know, plus $20,000 more just by going down the street. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, when you ask the first half of your question, like, do people, do people in the industry recognize that it's a labor market? I think in general, not until the pandemic. No, I think in fundraising, as you, you and I have also chatted about this before. I mean, the average year for a fundraiser gets lower and lower and lower every single year. I mean, you wrote a book in part about it, right? I think, what is it now? It's like 13, 13 months that we last as fundraisers at an organization or something like that. Um, And so I think that's always been the case, but I, I think Part of the reason that that has occurred, although I don't know that anyone was ever really paying attention to it um, as much as they are now, is that, you know, part of having a good place of employment is investing in in people's learning. And I think you and I have talked about this, particularly when you work in a small shop, something else, because there's just not a great deal of investment in personal or professional development. And so even outside of the wage, 
you know, what your total compensation is and, and how you want to grow and develop as a human, the multidimensional humans that we are, you frequently had to yeah. leave your organization in order to grow. Do you, do you want, um, one of the, one of the things that we do with our clients is we encourage them to actually negotiate, not a starting salary. And, and, and this is, this is where some of the wage things, um, sort of rub, rub my thinking as well. Um, because there's an exponent. So like you talk about the, like you, we have, we've all said that it takes, you know, there's, there's this 18 month curve where the fundraiser inevitably leaves after, you know, 12 to 18 months or something, but the value of that development officer and the, the, their ability to raise funds goes up exponentially if they can stick around for say three years. And so one of the things I'm constantly saying to clients is, is not negotiate year one salary, but actually negotiate year three salary. I mean, if if the fundraisers won't actually stick around, they're the same fundraiser that that I that I hear in my mind that's saying that they need to be paid more is the same fundraiser who just moved three different jobs in the last five years. That's the <laughs> that's the thing that I get hung up on. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think oftentimes, and that's part of the practical implication, right? Not the malice or or bad intent is that right. There are practical implications. And so, but I, I think it's easy to be short-sighted when we are looking at the immediate practical implications. And so the immediate practical implications are, okay, that's what's in this year's budget. But that's what I'm saying about the cost of investment versus the cost of loss. We frequently are like, ooh, it costs too much to invest in this initiative, this person, this effort, right? In this type of stewardship or development, um, cultivation. But what we fail to recognize is the cost of the loss of that employee or that donor or that, you know what I'm saying? I, I think it was, um, I, I, geez, I can't remember uh, the, the, the chronicle of philanthropy. I want to say this, and this is all pre pandemic. This is 2015, 2016. She, she was quoted, you know, big voice in our fundraising space. She she's, she's saying in the, in an article that I read, um, Telling young fundraisers, so it's that it's that fundraiser who you and I bump into at the AFP meeting, who's less than two years in, that we shouldn't even bother. She basically says you shouldn't even bother with small shops, and, oh. and, and some of what in between the lines, in between the lines of what she was basically saying is, if she's getting at some of these things, they don't know how to compensate. They don't know how to compensate our fundraisers adequately enough, and in in addition to the myriad of things. That, that that they don't necessarily quote unquote have or should have that that she said don't even bother with them uh what's her proposed what was her proposed solution though did that everybody goes to a big organization but then <laughs> what do the small shops do I'm yeah. not gonna- <laughs> I'm not going to put her on this. I'm not going to put, I'll tell you when we, when we stop hitting the record, when we, un, I'll yeah. tell you who she is, but she's a highly respected individual in the fundraising yeah. space. And she basically yeah. says, you know, she's quoted in the Chronicle of Philanthropy is basically saying, don't bother go working for small shops. And my guess is, is that in between the lines of what she's saying is, is they don't know how to, it, one of those things I would guess on a checklist is they don't know how to pay you well enough. I mean, is that essentially what you and I are saying to a young fundraiser right now? Is there not uh, going to know how to get you over 18 bucks an hour? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's what I'm saying. I will say that, you know, as we open in the introduction and I, and I, I never forget this because <laughs> when I was offered my job at the Boy Scouts, they said, well, why should we hire you? And I said, why should I take this job? And they said, because right. it's like carrying a gold card. And obviously, you know, the Boy Scouts are going through some challenges right now. Um, yes, uh, I'm not trying to make so. light of that, but basically they said, you are going to learn so much here. You are going to learn from senior staff people, you're going to have professional development. You're going to, and, and all of that was true. All of that was true. Um, had I not started in a larger shop, I don't yeah. know that I would have survived as a fundraiser. And that is not about the wage. That is about the learning, the learning that I did, um, the learning that, that, that they invested in and right. that career pathing, you know, when you work right. in a larger shop career path, is something that is visible 
when you work in a small shop, not only do you frequently not receive personal or professional development, but career pathing is in, is invisible, right? Like yeah. you don't know what you're going to be able to do next. And, and again, you know, a person who's constantly learning and gets to try new things and has flexibility and creativity in their work, but it's not rote. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't want to put this individual on the spot, but we're talking about a highly respected individual in the space. I, I, I know, I know some of, some of who her clients are and, and these are generally larger shops and, and, you know, going back to sort of reflecting on sort of some of the argument that I made in that first book is that in order to get to that wage and in order to compete with some of the underlying logic that this, this individual sort of making um, part, you know, to sort of combat that, how, how much of this Christy is on the, how much of the, how much of the, how much of the onus of this is on the fundraiser for knowing that if you're spending 80% of your time doing galas and golf tournaments, you're not going to raise enough money in order for this, this organization to pay you enough. Yeah. I don't know that the onus is on the fundraiser. I think, and I mean, I actually feel sad about this, but because I think you and I have both worked inside of organizations and then with organizations. So we've sat at both sides of the table. It's like, I can internally be a staff person and say my idea. Then a consultant is hired. They say the exact same idea I've been saying for years. And all of a sudden the idea has merit, right? Yeah. And so as an internal staff person, I may be advocating for us. It's not my responsibility, but I may be noticing, I may be observing, I may be um, developing my instincts and say, hey, you know what? We have these great events, but all of the events are transactions. Why are we not adding any event donors into any of our, the rest of our development calendar? Why are they not a segment? Why are we not inviting them to volunteer? Why are we not... Um, you know, including them in our stewardship efforts. And perhaps my leadership says, well, it costs a lot of money to, you know, send them a postcard once a year. It's, it costs a lot of money to um, add a segment to our annual, uh, you know, end of calendar year mailing. It, it costs a lot of money to, but then all those people turn over, over and over again. And so I don't think it's the fundraiser. It's not exclusively the fundraiser's responsibility for sure. Um, you know, to, to recognize that you're paying me to just do the galas to where like it's, it just turns over every year. Um, but I think fundraisers are smart and they're passionate and I think they're noticing those things and advocating for those things. And, and sometimes those things fall, um, you know, it's leadership is not always as receptive to it as, as, as what they could be. Yeah. And, and and I think in between the lines of everything, you, I, I think, I think the fundraiser, I think that's part of what I don't see in the wage, wage specifically, mm. wage concern specifically to fundraisers. I don't see in between the lines of what I have read that fundraiser fundraisers are getting smarter and they're waking up to the idea, for example, for example, old white guys from Pittsburgh were getting paid really well to come in and do feasibility studies 75 years ago. And they were making three to four times as much money as the gal who's running the Galen golf tournament. Are we, are we, is some of this wage problem going to work itself out because we're realizing that perhaps the, the feasibility study, the, the money that we're paying an outsider to do on a, you know, to, to, to take our donors out to lunch and ask them if they'll write really big checks is work that the guy or gal who's on the payroll can actually do. I mean, is, is this really a, is this, a, is this the injustice of a wage problem or is this a, what I call fundraising's messy adolescence? We're just growing up and, you know, the old white guys from Pittsburgh, as I call them, you know, we don't need them doing that type of work anymore. You follow me? Yeah, I think it's both. And I mean, I think there's space for there to be both. And I think there's both. And, and I think that is perhaps a silver lining opportunity for the pandemic is that we can cut some of the old guy, white guys from Pittsburgh out and let the the gal that runs the, the golf outing, right? Like try right. her hand at that. And frankly, I think you and I both know this though. 
the donors know that person better. They know the internal staff person, whether it's a girl or a boy or a man or a woman or a, you know, somebody that has, you know, gray hair, blonde hair. They know that person better anyway and are probably more receptive to taking a meeting and to writing a check from that internal staff person because that's the person that they interact with. That's the person that they know. Um, And hopefully the pandemic, one of the things that it will allow is for us to, uh, whether it's through a forced hand or not, give people on staff a chance to do those things. So, so what are you that the, the the young man or the young lady that we bump into at that AFP meeting? Unlike the advice that was given to by one of our uh, what we'll call our our sacred fundraising wizards, as I like to snarkily refer to them, what advice are you giving to that person on this point? Because if you find out that we'll call her, you know, Sam or Sally at the AFP meeting. And you find out she's he or she is making thirty eight thousand dollars a year for a charity that you know in two years won't be able to afford them. What are you telling them? Uh, I think I'm telling. I think I. I think I'm telling them to be ruthless advocates for themselves yeah. and for yeah. their colleagues, and to be yeah. ruthless researchers and to yeah. present evidence. Right? Like we we. Here's the thing, Jason. We we know this. We know that monthly donors are retained at 90%-ish. We know that our average as an industry, the retention is only around 40%. We know the activities required between 40% and 90%. What I would tell that young person at the AF, what I would tell 26-year-old me is like, keep reading, keep learning, keep talking, keep bringing it up. Keep bringing it up. Try a few things that you have to ask for forgiveness for and see the difference that it makes. And when you can move your agency's donor retention rate up from 40% to 70% in one year through one activity, and that activity is sending a first-time donor postcard that has a handwritten note within 30 days of their first gift, yeah, then that's all, that's the only case you need to make, you know, pick, pick the smallest thing that will make the biggest difference, try it, iterate. And, and that's what I would say to that young person. That's what I would say to 26 year old you or me, you know, the, um, I remember, so 2000, 2001, beginning of my fundraising career, I remember going to a conference and learning that there was a major donor that was giving money to organizations to the tune of about $65,000, $70,000 a year to basically prop up a major gifts officer type role inside organizations that didn't know how to do it. And I remember being told that one of the challenges, one of the challenges that this donor encountered was that the executive directors didn't know how to propose and, and make that ask that the executive directors themselves who could prop this gift officer, someone like yourself or myself who could take people out to lunch and ask for more meaningful, you know, and, and across the board weight, perhaps impact the organization and raise wages for everyone in the organization. The executive director themselves didn't know how to make a request Mm of 200, $300,000 to prop up this initiative. I mean, is this really a, a fundraising or a ma- is this really a macro problem or is this that we that we ha- we don't have executive directors who know their way around fundraising? You ask all the hard questions, Jason. I'm I sorry, mean, I- Christy. <laughs> you, you've been listening to the podcast. You've been on here before. I, know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that's an. I think that that's another. I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think that's another both and problem. I mean, I think those executive directors, and I think we know this is like this is another thing that I do think we know. There's lots we don't know. I think this is something that we do know is that those executive directors that have oh my goodness, painstakingly stuck it out because let's face it, that's that's how they're there. They've they've weathered the storm. Yeah. They were the 26-year-old at the AFP luncheon who also has received no training, no personal development, no professional development. So do they need um, you know, they they need, even though they may be much more advanced in their career than that, that initial like individual gift officer. 
they probably don't, they have a lot of experience and they, and they certainly have a lot of on the job experience, but they probably have the same, you know, um, amount, quote unquote, of training, quote unquote, that the 26 year old at the AFP luncheon does, you know, um, because the, in general, there's just an underinvestment um, in, in even allowing us as staff people to have the time and flexibility to learn right on our own outside of what it costs to learn. Yeah. And, and, and my answer to my own question, the question I asked about the 26 year old at the AFP meeting is, and this loops back to my comment at the very beginning about the notion of over-professionalization have, have we not told enough 26 year olds this is the chap- this is the chapter in that first book that I regret not writing. It's the chapter about the fundraising CEO. Do more of our 26-year-olds who are in fundraising roles need to know and understand that they perhaps don't need to climb the ladder of professional fundraising and they perhaps need to climb the ladder of learning how to be an executive director who knows how to ask for big checks. I don't know that there's as many fundraisers. If we go to a if we go to an AFP meeting next month or an AFP conference, how many of those fundraisers in that room are being told stop worrying about getting all these credentials to be a remarkable rock star fundraiser and start figuring out how to lead these institutions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that would be a welcomed message to a younger me or a younger you, right? I mean, that 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 is one of the paths, definitely. Should and and that's the- a way that you can bring tremendous value, right? And and do and do we perhaps need to? Uh, uh, w- one of the one of the uh, ideas that I'm introducing in the new book is this idea of a, a, a an intervening subculture. Do we, as the fundraising community, need to stop seeing ourselves in sort of this subculture dynamic, sort of pushed it over into the corner, and is part of the reason why we're not making wages that we perhaps deserve because we're in this sort of subculture that that the rest of the organization really doesn't give a damn about, and instead we need to be you know. Learning, I, I think of the. I got thirty five kids in my class. I'll be talking to tomorrow. I'm not telling them to become fundraisers. I'm telling them to become executive directors who know how to ask for a big check. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the other thing that I'm. Now, now we're just visiting all the things we would tell our younger selves. But like, I think I think that's <laughs> you're you're hitting on a good point though. That I think something that's lacking in our culture oftentimes is is the fact that fundraising is everyone's responsibility, right? Like yes. folks in the program department, you know, yes. we folks in the program department and and folks in the development department, we are partners in resource development, right? Yeah. Um right. we if if we work in an integrated way in a way where we acknowledge each other's strengths, we acknowledge each other's relationships, um, and we work together to amplify each other's strengths, yeah. then the organization, you know, wins. But I think you're right. There is some sort of subversive, like, subculture where we're all separated. And that that's to the detriment of the clients we serve, the communities that we live in, and to ourselves as professionals. I mean, who has pointed out that this is, I, I don't think I've ever pointed this out, but we're pointing it out today. I mean, you and I, we figured out before we hit the record button that you and I are practically the same age. I mean, how many fundraisers are so driven and have a skill set that sort of plateaus at about 40 years old and they're perfectly capable because if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, and if you're not doing what you're doing, you probably don't necessarily need to be in a fundraising role. You need to be in what I would call a fundraising CEO role. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be running one of those big, you know, I don't know, one of those big charities in Indianapolis and and raising a hell of a lot of money while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because I mean, we I, do. I mean, how many of how many of our colleagues? I can I can I could probably write it. I can think of so many colleagues, and I'm sure you can too, that I have gone to conferences with for more than two decades that ultimately <laughs> into consulting roles because they basically sort of peaked out on the fundraising path. Does fundraising as a professional path not offer all that much? Well, a, I think. 
bold question. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that it does, though. But I think that's because of the rote nature of it. I mean, I think it, in in old thinking. Um, I mean, I think that it's interesting today we're talking on March 15th. This will air later in April. Yeah. March yeah. 15th today is the day that marks when women have worked far enough into the year to earn what a man earned last year, right? Yeah. In, right, in, right, in sure. April, when this airs, it will be actual equal payday, the way that we recognize equal yes, payday. Absolutely. And yes. so among women in particular, there is a mass exodus from the workforce in general. Less women are working now than they were in the 80s. But you know where they're all going. They're all going to entrepreneurship. They're all going to consulting. But I think to your point, wh- why women are going there, women in particular, which, you know, that's the, what I'm focused on in this exact moment, but it's it's not untrue of men as well. That's because that plateau does exist. And at least when you're in consulting, yes, there are a lot of risks. There are a lot of, you know, it's like it's it's a it's a it's a lot. It's a big shift. But but you you the your ability to create, and you've experienced this, I've experienced this, your ability to create and to learn is limitless. Yeah. And when you work in-house, that part of that plateau is your ability to learn and create. That just gets shut off at a certain point. I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have so in my class, I mean, you know, it's probably let's say it's 50 50 guys and gals. And I'm constantly pointing out that our so so our smoke, uh, the, you know, our local liberal arts college where I teach, for example, we have a we have three, three generations of old white guys that have run the college. And now we have an African-American woman who is just doing a bang up job in addressing some issues that the institution's never been able to address previously. Um, You know, these three characters that preceded her sort of fit the, fit the local norm or what was expected of an, of an individual who would sort of lead this institution. But what our president is doing now, what she is able to do, on a much grander scale is remarkable. And, and, and I just sort of reflect on that and think if you're talking to Sally, not necessarily Sam, but if you're talking to Sally and she's 26 years old at the AFP meeting, I just don't know that I'm encouraging her to get all that tied up in whether or not she becomes a rock star fundraiser. Cause I want her to lead the, you know, I want her to run the community foundation. I want her to run the local college or, you know, like you're saying, become an entrepreneur, um, and I'm thinking about the 16, year, you know, 17 year old daughter on the other side of this wall here. <laughs> I want the same thing for her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, is that part of the messy adolescence too? And is that some of the complexity that some of these conversations about wage to bring us back to and sort of wrap up? Are some of these wage conversations really about? the nonprofit sector and perhaps the fundraising profession sort of growing up a little bit. I think it is, but I think part of that growing up, which could be a whole other show. And I, and I know we don't have all day, but (laughs) is the long held um, mentality that nonprofit is. And, and I know there's great debate about this. And so I'm not trying to, um, uh, I'm not trying to imply that I think fundraising is sales because I don't, what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say is, Nonprofit is a tax status. It's not a business model. And so I think sometimes we limit our creativity and we refuse to try. At the end of the day, we're all running a business. Um, And some of the creative things that frequently get shut down are things that work well in business and we're running a business. Um, yes, we're going to be good stewards. Yes, we're going to do those things. But, but some of some of that has to be brought in to this. I mean, that that's part of what's limiting this 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 conversation is is just the thought that nonprofits can only do things in a certain way, right? That we can never, um, you know, something as small as asking our donors, you know, if they want to cover the credit card transaction fee for their donation, right? right? Which is actually right. the ultimate transparency because then the donor knows that their gift. The whole gift is going to the program, not the gift minus $3.18 or whatever, you know, but there's just um, a lot of times just inflexibility to even try small things like that. You know, what can we learn and borrow from other industries, right? 
Christy, I have uh, exhausted my time and yours, and our listeners are probably already, uh, we've probably already lost a few of them. Um, the question I like to ask our, our guests uh, who do consulting like you do, um, who is the individual that's listened to this conversation that you're most interested in hearing from? And then tell us how that person can, uh, how they can, how they can find you. We get, um, I usually hear from people in your seat that they get lots of feedback and follow up and new clients and new opportunities. So who do you want reaching out to you, say, this afternoon? Well, if the conversation interested you and you'd like to try new ideas, not just to diversify your fundraising efforts, but to sustain them, I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you particularly are in youth and community development, um, mm-hmm. I love working with all people, but those are those are my among my favorite folks to work with. Um, yeah. And you can find me. I work um, at the Lilly School of Philanthropy. You can find me there. Um, you can also find me on my own website and blog at khsconsulting.org. Christy, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to seeing your little tykes on uh, Facebook tomorrow or something of the sort. Uh, <laughs> and you're certainly always welcome back. It's been a great conversation. It's been so great to talk with you, Jason. Thank you so much. And thanks for uh, keeping this conversation going in our space and keeping us connected, uh, especially during the pandemic. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.